We'll hear argument this morning in case 08441, Gross v. FBL Financial Services. Mr. Schnapper. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals erred in holding that the plaintiff had to have direct evidence in order to obtain this specific instruction at issue in this case. This Court's decision in Desert Palace makes two important points that are uh, relevant today. First, the Court noted that uh, this Court had at no time uh, imposed a direct evidence requirement without an affirmative directive from Congress to do so. Uh, Secondly, the Court noted that Congress, when it wished to impose heightened standards — Excuse me. That that statement uh, may be wrong depending upon how you read Price Waterhouse, might it not? The the first state that we've never uh, imposed such a requirement. I mean, if you think Justice O'Connor's opinion was the determinative opinion in Price Waterhouse, then then, then we had. Um, that that's true, Your Honor. That was not the view of the court in Desert Palace. Desert Palace may have misspoken in that regard. It was dictum. They may have been wrong. Uh, well, we we like to think they're right. Um, I mean, we think they are right, but of course, that you're, as you as you say, that that is in a sense one of the questions before us. Well, uh, but uh, you, you, I just want you said the, the court has never opposed imposed the burden of proof shifting requirement absent a directive from Congress. So you read no, I, I or, or maybe maybe I misheard. Oh well, I may have misspoken, Your Honor. Um, what the court said was that this court had never imposed a direct evidence requirement in oh. the absence oh. of an, an affirmative directive fr- from Congress. There's some disagreement among the parties, of course, uh, what direct evidence means, whether it means direct as opposed to circumstantial or direct in, in the uh, terms that, for example, Judge Colleton put it in the decision below. Your Honor, there's not a difference between the parties. We take no position on that. Um, there's a considerable variety of views about So the- you're telling us that we've never required direct evidence when you're not taking a position on what direct evidence is? The, I mean, you may be right or you may be wrong, but we kind of have to know what we're dealing with. Yeah, the, the Court hasn't put those two things together in the, in the way you did. I think that's fair. Um, the, the Court's statement in Desert Palace didn't define direct evidence. It's not, it's, it's not clear in that, in, in that sense exactly what the Court meant. I, I think it's fair to say it certainly meant the Court hadn't required direct evidence in the sense of, of, of non, non-circumstantial evidence. Um, but... Uh, well, you put, in your petition, you asked, you used the phrase direct evidence, and I just want to know in what sense you mean that. We, it's our view that no particular special evidence is required to get the instruction in this case. Is there a, a variety of views among the circuits on what Justice O'Connor meant by the term direct evidence? It wasn't defined in Price Waterhouse either. Uh, no, no, it was not, Your Honor. So the, there is a range of views on what it means, starting from direct versus circumstantial to something like um, strong evidence. There is a range of views on that, but our, our view is the, the, the burden on, it, on the plaintiff is to show by a preponderance of the evidence that, in this case, age was a motivating factor, but it's not required to show it by any particular kind of evidence, or to show it by strong evidence as opposed to merely evidence sufficient to establish that by preponderance of the evidence. Price Waterhouse was a bench trial. Yes. And Mount Healthy was a bench trial, wasn't it? I believe so, yes. Now, would the — if there is a direct evidence requirement, uh, it may arguably cause a great deal of problem when the, the trial judge has to give an instruction to the jury because th- then the, 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 the jury is, will first have to decide whether a particular type of evidence is present in the case before it can tell what, who has the burden of proof and what the standard is. But if Pricewaterhouse is understood simply as a way for a judge conducting a bench trial to look at the evidence, does it present any of the problems that have been identified with the Price Waterhouse, that interpretation of Price Waterhouse as applied to jury trials? Well, um, 
it wouldn't present the same. There are special problems applying it to jury trials. Um, we think that a requirement of direct evidence is, is simply wrong uh, for, for a number of reasons. Um, at the least, the Court would have to finally resolve what direct evidence means in this particular context. Well, if it's just an instruction to a judge conducting a bench trial, it could mean that if the, if the judge sitting as the trier of fact finds that there is direct evidence, strong evidence, uh, <clears throat> supporting the plaintiff's claim, then the judge will need to have uh, strong evidence, stronger evidence on the other side in order to rule against the plaintiff. It's not hard to figure out how it might work out in that situation. The problem comes when it has to be posed in the form of a jury instruction. Well, it's a particularly serious problem there, but it, um, if, if you were to announce this as a rule, you would, I think the time has come to explain definitively what direct evidence means. The courts of appeals are in wide disagreement about that. And, and, um, in it, any event, it was the view of only one justice, Justice O'Connor alone. Uh, she did make the fifth vote, but no one else accepted a direct evidence test. Your Honor, she made the sixth vote. Um, there were right, five right. members of the court, other than Justice O'Connor, who uh, uh, agreed in the result in that case. The plurality expressly rejected a direct evidence well, requirement. Would you, would, you, would you urge that we should count Justice White's decision as the controlling decision rather than Justice O'Connor's? To the extent that you were disposed to resolve this case based on an interpretation of Press Waterhouse. But it's our view that the subsequent decision, unanimous decision in, in Desert Palace, um, makes that unnecessary. A Desert Palace uh, uh, indicates that heightened proof requirements, broadly, those are the words of the opinion, um, it suggests they should not be imposed by the courts absent a statutory directive. But Desert Palace was a, a Title VII case, wasn't it, under the 1991 amendment to Title VII? It was. But th that part of the reasoning of the case is not based on the language of Title VII, other than the absence from Title VII of that specific language. The structure of the opinion first talks about the definition of demonstrate in Section 701M. That's obviously not relevant to the ADEA. But then it goes on to say that the absence in Title VII of any heightened proof requirement, it, it also weighs heavily against the Court's inferring. And, and that part of the reasoning isn't limited to Title VII. But, but, but your, your, your position, you rest heavily on the argument, I think, that there's no textual support in the ADA uh, for a heightened evidence requirement in order to shift the burden of proof. But isn't it true there's no textual support for shifting the burden of proof at all? Um, I mean, I, I don't see how you the, uh, but the, can, can, can convince us of the first proposition without confronting the second. Well, the, the, this Court has, on a number of occasions, allocated the burden of proof among the parties, including to a defendant, without a specific textual basis. The Court did so, for example, in Burlington Industries versus Ellerth, where the Court's opinion places on the defendant the burden of establishing an affirmative defense in certain types of sexual harassment cases. There wasn't a textual basis for that. Uh, the well, of course, affirmative defenses uh, are usually the, the burden of persuasion is on the party asserting the affirmative defense. Well, and and in, in justice, in, in the case of Price Waterhouse, Justice White characterized this allocation as the burden as an affirmative defense. But this sort of thing happens routinely with regard to the allocation of burdens. It does not happen routinely with regard to heightened evidence requirements. I take it the only issue that you have raised before us is whether the evidence that does raise a burden on the defendant's part has got to be, whatever this means, direct or not. That's the only issue. That, that's the only issue before the Court. Now, am I, am I right that the only source of argument for the proposition that there does have to be direct evidence uh, is Justice O'Connor's opinion, separate opinion? Well, that has been the primary basis of the argument in the Courts below. I think Respondent has other arguments as well. Well, the, there, are, there are arguments uh, about the need for substantial evidence. But the argument for direct evidence goes back to the separate O'Connor opinion. That, that's certainly the origin. And, and are you, I mean, we're going to hear about this. Are you going to make an argument to the effect that that 
should not be regarded as the controlling opinion, and if that is the source of it, that is the end of the issue. Is, is, are, you, are you going to get into well, that? Well, I, I, I would be happy to get into that, Your Honor. I, I, um, I think you should. Um, as, as, our, as Justice um, uh, Ginsburg pointed out, um, there, are, um, there were actually six members of the Court in uh, Price Waterhouse who concurred in the result. Uh, four members of the Court in the plurality expressly rejected uh, a direct evidence requirement and said there were no limits on the type of evidence that could be used. Uh, Justice White uh, uh, said that the plaintiff's burden was to show that, in that case, gender was a substantial factor. He didn't say substantial evidence was required. I as I understand the White opinion, it had nothing to do with the character of the evidence. It had to do with the degree of persuasiveness of the evidence. Is that correct? I, I, with due respect, no, Your Honor. It, it had to and, do and I don't understand what substantial means. What, what, what do you think he meant by it? A substantial factor was somewhere on the scale of a very unimportant factor or a very, very important factor, which is separate from how clear the evidence was that it was a small or a large factor. Okay. Okay. In your response to Justice Souter's question, you said you're only focusing on the direct evidence threshold. But if direct evidence is the threshold to give you the benefit of shifting the burden of persuasion of the employer, is it really fair for you to be able to say we're only going to take out one side of the balance, we're going to leave the other side of the balance there? It seems to me that it's artificial to separate the two requirements, the two aspects of the Price Waterhouse inquiry. Well, the, the, um, the Pricewaterhouse plurality in Justice White didn't see two aspects. The requirement was proof by preponderance of the evidence that in that case gender was a motivating factor. And for five members of the Court, that was sufficient. Um, there, wasn't a, there wasn't something else that went with it. There was for Justice O'Connor, but she's the sixth vote. Um, and, and, and I, I understand that the difficulty of figuring out who's controlling in, in Price Waterhouse. But at least as it's been applied, my understand, I understand it's been applied different ways. My understanding of what people mean when they say the Price Waterhouse approach, which is that there is a higher showing of evidence, direct evidence, whatever, people don't agree on what that means. But if you meet that showing, then the burden of persuasion shifts to the employer on the issue of causation. You're right. That's precisely the issue on which the lower courts have been divided. Some courts have expressly rejected that view and have taken the view that there is no special heightened standard of any kind. Other courts think that it is required. That's what we But, Mr. Schnapper, there is a difference, and I think it's critical to your case, between what's called the prima facie case that a, a plaintiff would make under the McDonnell-Douglas test and proving by a preponderance of the evidence that in this case, age discrimination was a motivating factor. I, mean, I think you must concede that in order to fit within this double motive frame, you must show not simply a prima facie case, but by a preponderance of the evidence that the discriminatory factor was a motivating factor. Yes, we, we are obligated to do that. And the, the, uh, the defendant has argued below and would, I think, on remand still be in a position to argue that we didn't have enough evidence to, to meet that burden. But that question isn't before us. Can, can, can one know if you've met that burden before the case goes to the jury? That is, when, when the case starts out, it's unknown whether you have established by a preponderance of the evidence that age discrimination was a motivating factor. Well, um, whether there's sufficient evidence is often tested by a motion for summary judgment. So courts do look at that matter, that issue, before trial. What, what isn't knowable before trial, and, and frankly is often owned only to the jury, is whether the jury will conclude that the defendant acted with two motives or one motive. That, that isn't something you would normally be able to, to resolve before the case went to trial or even during the course well, of the Well, don't — correct me if I'm wrong. I assume that in a jury case, that simply was left to the jury, and the instruction would be something like this. If you find uh, that the plaintiff has shown that age was a motivating factor, then you look to the next question, and that is, has the defendant shown that he would have fired the plaintiff anyway? Isn't that the way it works? That's the, that's the way it works. Yes, that's the way it works. And that, that is the way it works 
um, in, in a Title VII case uh, because of the language of the statute. The juries routinely get that instruction in those cases. That's certainly proof. Well, in, in response further to Justice Ginsburg's question, and I think Justice Souter's too, is there, um, are there any tactical difficulties or strategic difficulties that counsel face uh, if they don't quite know which way the burden is going to shift before trial? Uh, the, 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 the number of witnesses you have waiting in the hallway, or uh, this is this would be after summary judgment. Um, I, I, no more than would normally be the case. Uh, what happened here in terms of the jury instructions was typical, which was the parties proposed their differing instructions a week before trial. The instructions were resolved at the end of the trial. That's, that happens all the time. Sometimes if the parties don't know how the instructions are going to come out, that complicates their tactics, but that happens every day in trials. Thank you. Could, uh, before you sit down, I, uh, I've been trying to figure out uh, Justice White's opinion in uh, Price Waterhouse. Why, why, why do you? I mean, indeed, he he voted uh, to uh, to remand the case, as did uh, as did the four in the plurality, but for a very different reason. They remanded because we reversed the Court of Appeals judgment against Price Waterhouse. Uh, because the courts below erred by deciding that the defendant must make the proof of uh, uh, he would have been fired anyway by clear and convincing evidence. That, that was the basis for their uh, reversing and remanding. That was not uh, Justice White's. Uh, because He said because the Court of Appeals required Price Waterhouse to prove by clear and convincing evidence that it would have reached the same in the absence of the improper motive, rather than merely requiring proof by a preponderance of the evidence as in Malthack. I concur in the judgment reversing this case in part and remanding. With respect to the employer's burden, however, the plurality seems to require that the employer submit objective evidence. And, and there, he there, disagreed with that. All right. There, there were a number of different issues in the case. Um, the first one, the Court of Appeals had held that when the burden is on the employer to show it would have made the same decision anyway. The employer has to meet that burden with clear and convincing evidence. The plurality and Justice White, and I think the whole Court rejected that. Secondly, the plurality uh, suggested that the employer in response would have to have objective evidence. Um, Justice White rejected that, and the objective evidence standard has not been followed by the lower courts in, in the wake of that. The third question um, was whether the burden should be placed on the employer. On that issue, uh, the Court was divided six to three. Um, six justices, as we, as we noted, were for that burden allocation. Um, uh, the, the Justice Kennedy and, and yourself and the Chief Justice dissented. So there were many issues. Thank you. I'd like to reserve. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Watt. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I think both on a substantive level and a procedural level, Desert Palace largely resolves this case. The question presented is the one of should you have a direct evidence requirement to obtain a mixed mode of instruction under the AGE Act. And there's the procedural posture, um, which is Desert Palace left unresolved a lot of very difficult and complicated questions about when do you get to the jury on mixed motive and what is the requirement that separates a mixed motive motivating factor instruction from the but-for, or commonly known as the McDonnell-Douglas, and Desert Palace left all that unresolved. On the question presented, there has the same conflict in the circuits under the AGE Act is the same conflict in the circuits that was under Title VII, is do you need any kind of evidentiary special showing to get to a mixed motive, and if so, is it non-circumstantial evidence or uh, evidence that directly ties? Can I ask you this? Do you think that there's a tenable distinction between a mixed motives case and a non-mixed motives case? In every employment discrimination case that gets beyond summary judgment, aren't there mixed motives at play? I think there's a lot to be said for that argument, and this is a very difficult and unsettled question under Title VII. I think what would be on the table if this Court ever had an appropriate vehicle, and this certainly is not the appropriate vehicle to get into this question, there would be several options on the table. You could have what your view suggests which is after summary judgment, you could get a motivating factor instruction if the jury would be permitted to find both impermissible and permissible motives. You could also have a special verdict form that asks the jury, do you find that there were two causes, one of which was an impermissible factor? And you could have a situation which I think prevails in trial courts now and has been the EEOC's practice, 
which is, and it's not the most analytically clean, but they basically give the instruction, either a determinative cause or a motivating factor instruction, on what they think uh, best fits the evidence. And I think it's important to, for the Court to understand, as we, the law exists now under Title VII and under all the other anti-discrimination acts, there are two regimes out there. There's a mixed motive regime and a determining factor. Couldn't, it, couldn't any Title VII case be presented in either framework? Yes. But this is what I'm going to also give you, which I think is important, especially when you write your opinion, the three reasons why you should not resolve this very difficult question in this case. And the first is that it wasn't pressed or passed on below or raised in the brief in opposition and it's not received full briefing by the parties and all the amici. And second, just as you left this issue open in footnote one of your opinion in Desert Palace, Judge Colleton, writing for the Court, recognized this precise issue in footnote three of the Court's opinion on petition appendix page 12, saying, assuming there's no direct evidence requirement, we're going to have to figure out when is it appropriate to give a motivating factor instruction absent the, 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 the language, expressed language in Title VII. Why the don't third you, reason. Why, I'll let you get your third reason in in a minute. But why do you really think it's fair to pick one part of a complicated test that the Court has constructed and say, well, this one doesn't make any sense, and pull it out? I mean, maybe it only makes sense in the context of the whole construct, or maybe none of the elements actually make sense, but it seems to me very artificial to focus on one aspect and say, let's fix this, without assessing what its impact is on the rest of the test. Well, I see your point, even though that's exactly what you did in Desert Palace. But Pricewaterhouse is a two-decade-old decision. We're 20 years past that, and it has been essentially codified in Title VII. So no matter what you do to, quote, unquote, fix this under the Age Act, Every, the bulk of the discrimination cases fall under Title VII, and a motivating factor instruction is codified, and you unanimously held a Desert Palace, there's no special evidence that was because, That was because of the 1991 Act, which addressed Title VII and quite deliberately left ADEA out. But unless you overrule Price Waterhouse, which would be an upheaval in the law, and it certainly wouldn't, this wouldn't be the appropriate case to do it, all the courts of appeals have unanimously held under the Age Act and under a wide variety of state statutes and other federal discrimination statutes that the Price-Waterhouse burden-shifting framework applies. You're asking us to overrule the aspect of Price-Waterhouse involving direct evidence, at least if you look at Justice O'Connor's right. opinion. And I don't think you need to decide that question. In a lot of other contexts, you have said, well, there's language in our opinion that may have been uh, confusing or it's not clear what the holding is, but we henceforth are going to clarify Here's what the law is. You did it in the recent crack cocaine case in Spears. You did it in your new dancing case. And you did it in a case called uh, Jefferson versus City of Tarrant County, an opinion Justice Ginsburg authored, that you said, well, there's some language here, but subsequent cases have made clear. And there's lots of reasons why you would not impose a direct evidence requirement, however you define that term. Since um, Desert Palace, there is a decision of a Sprint United versus Mendelssohn. And I think that case a fortiori forecloses all the arguments made by the other side that, well, even if it doesn't mean non-circumstantial evidence, it must mean something that's highly relevant to the issue of discrimination. In Sprint United, you said, we're not going to have a per se rule about what's relevant to prove discrimination. The Court said the same thing in Reeves. I think that was a unanimous decision. What, do, what would be the position of the Solicitor General on just saying, let's get rid of all these artificial court constructions and say this is like any other case. The plaintiff has the burden of persuasion, and the, the defendant can come up with what defenses he has, including that I did this for some other reason. It wasn't because of age. And the jury looks at it and decides well, who they believe. You would still have the same issue as you have under the constitutional uh, regime of what is causation. And if you ask my opinion, the Solicitor General in, in Price Waterhouse itself argued something completely different that no justice adopted. We argued a standard of causation that no one, no one was persuaded by. Six went off on this motivating factor with the burden-shifting approach, and three of the justices would have applied a straight but-for causation. The statute has language. It says because of. And it, Tell the it, jury that. Absolutely. And it did in Title VII. And this Court, for better or worse, regardless of what you think in Price Waterhouse, six justices defined the language because of. And we have Price Waterhouse now that's codified. And is, so, there any, is there any empirical evidence to show whether any of this really makes a difference? Uh, have there been studies on the effect of the uh, the 1991 amendments? 
whether they've made an, a difference in the way cases actually come out? No. And let me just say two responses. Not that I've seen empirical. I can tell you the EEOC's experience, and that is they sometimes prefer a but for all the burden being on them, and sometimes they prefer the motivating factor instruction. And despite what Respondent points out, they have some defendants that think they like the affirmative defense. So I, and, and sometimes counsel just agree on what the instruction should be. And it hasn't caused that much of a problem, although the, there is a lot of confusion about this kind of case where the defendant is insisting on one instruction and the plaintiff wants another instruction. And that's what Judge Colleton is reserving in a footnote saying on remand, I'm going to have to sort this out. Yeah, but regardless of what the parties may prefer, isn't it likely that a, a jury, regardless of instruction, uh, is, is going to say something like this? If we find that, that age really was in the boss's mind uh, when he fired the person, uh, and the boss comes in, regardless of the instructions, and says, you know, the guy's work was no good, he got late, arrived late every day, and so on, the jury's going to say, you know, did they really fire him because he was old or because he didn't come to work on time? They're going to do the same thing that they're going to do under the burden-shifting instruction, probably, aren't they? I mean, yeah, there are two kinds of jury findings. There's this, but the problem in all this area, if, if you do ever get a case that's appropriate, I think what the Court should start with the assumption, what Justice Alito alluded to, Pricewaterhouse was a bench trial. The 1991 amendments under Title VII were against the backdrop of non-jury trials. And both Pricewaterhouse decision and the language of Title VII are written ex post. What, it's assuming some artificial world where there was a finding of mixed motives. But in today's world, everything needs to be done ex ante. We need to know how to instruct the jury. And that's the fundamental problem. If you're looking at ex post world, you're exactly right. A jury could either find this was all a pretext. I think what was really going on was ageism or sexism or racism. Or it could find a split the baby. I think it's both. But you just can't possibly know that. You can't know it, but if you no, just said to the jury, do the right thing, they'd probably come out about the same way that they would come out uh, if, if you gave a burden-shifting instruction, I, I think. I think you're basically catching on the point that a lot of counsel in the real world are basically deciding what do we think the jury is going to be uh, most on our side with, with which instruction. And it's not always clear going into the case, maybe depending on the relative strength of the legitimate factor being asserted, some defendants may prefer the affirmative defense. Some may think, no, it's prejudicial. We don't want that. We want a straight determining factor instruction. But the reason I raise the issue is if, if we're saying do we, do we ditch Price Waterhouse, my questions, I guess, are suggesting something to the effect, what difference does it make? Well, I don't think you can ditch Price Waterhouse as a practical matter because you're going to create, I mean, Massive confusion, not only under the Age Act, but under the American with Disabilities Act, the Family Medical Leave Act, a variety of labor statutes. Jury, juries statutes. are smarter than judges. Well, you can do that, but all the problems you think you're solving, you're going to have to face them in Title VII. That is the bulk of discrimination law, and you have two standards of causation in that statute right now. Uh, go ahead and make your third point briefly. Oh, on why you shouldn't decide it? I mean, it's essentially this, that this is complicated, difficult under Title VII. That's the leading anti-discrimination statute. I think the Court may want to resolve these very <coughs> important questions in a Title VII case because you've got statutory language. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, it does seem to me in some ways the petitioner and respondent in this case are, are ships passing in the night because uh, the issues here are unbelievably complicated. I will say in 25 years of advocacy before this Court, I've not seen one area of the law that seemed to me as difficult to sort out as this particular one is. That said, I would hope that the Court would seize upon this as an opportunity to provide some significant clarity in the law rather than seize this as an opportunity to decide this case on the potentially most narrow ground, which, frankly, as far as I can tell, will not only not decide this case, ultimately, but certainly will not do anything to resolve the mass confusion that seems to exist among the lower courts. So I would urge the Court not to evaluate this case strictly on the question of whether direct versus circumstantial evidence is the appropriate way to proceed. In part, that's because that's not the basis on which the Eighth Circuit decided this case. The Eighth Circuit said that it interpreted Justice O'Connor's separate opinion calling for direct evidence is talking about a specific link between the proof uh, uh, in the proof of the discriminatory considerations and the adverse action that was taken. So 
direct versus circumstantial doesn't even, you know, if you remand to, to, to evaluate non-circumstantial evidence, you're still not going to be in a position where that's going to affect the outcome. As I understand the Court of Appeals, it said that Justice O'Connor's opinion was the controlling opinion. It was the decision on the narrowest ground. Therefore, the lower courts are to take that decision as the law made by Price Waterhouse. Then there's a question of what did she mean by direct evidence. But I think the Eighth Circuit certainly did say Justice O'Connor's opinion states the law of Price Waterhouse, and that was the basis on which their decision turned. Well, and then, of course, they go on to say what they think that decision means. But there's no question, Justice Ginsburg, that that is the basis for that holding. So, I mean, I suppose the Court could say, no, we disagree with the basis of Price Waterhouse's Justice White's separate concurring opinion, which, frankly, I think it is, you know, having read it more times than I care to admit, is not exactly clear as to what he thinks the appropriate standard would have been. At least Justice Ginsburg's provides a formulation that the lower courts can use to try to provide some kind of Justice a jury O'Connor's. instruction. Did I say Ginsburg? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to hear about this one. All right. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, but the problem, you know, the fun- the, but the fundamental problem is, is it's just simply not clear what Justice White's opinion means. And therefore, the, the lower courts have seized upon an opinion that at least provided serious guidance that they could embody into a, into a jury instruction. It goes to the point that Justice Alito was making, which is that you know, it's one thing when you're dealing with bench trials and what do you ask the judge to do. It's something fundamentally different when, you, when you're shifting the burden of proof. Justice Kennedy asked the question, does it make a difference tactically? And the same question Justice Souter in some ways was asking. And the answer is clearly it does. And you can see it in this case. Here's a situation where the defendant and prior to the trial, shows up, or, you know, when the jury gets selected, opening statement says there's going to be no evidence of actual age discrimination in this case. The case is tried on that theory. The basis for the judgment that there's going to be no evidence of age discrimination in this case is the discovery, extensive discovery that's taken place, where there is no statements by anyone talking about age, no other employee who believes that he or she had ever been affected by age. It's all all of this very abstract claim and the notion that somehow there's no better explanation for what happened except for age. You go through the entirety of the trial saying to the jury, there's no evidence of age, there's no evidence of age discrimination, and then at the last minute, not because you've asserted an affirmative defense, because we didn't assert an affirmative defense, one is foisted on us by the jury instruction that the plaintiff asked for in this particular case. It says that if there is a motivating factor, if you can prove a motivating factor, which it's, it's interesting to, to get to the specifics of a motivating factor, which means it played a part or a role, which is about as minimalist as you can have it, then the burden shifts, and we then have the burden to prove that we would have taken the, the same action notwithstanding age. Well, that's a very different inquiry. And when you go to the jury at the end, Mr. you, Phillips, you can can't I ask concede. You, I'm sorry. Can I ask you your views on a question that I ask myself over and over again and have trouble finding the answer? Supposing a company appointed a committee to decide whether or not to fire X, and the committee came back and said, yes, you should fire him. He's too old, and he's, not, and he's, he's late to work every day. Now, and that's all the evidence in the record. Would the, would the judge be obliged to enter judgment on summary, at the end of the plaintiff's case, enter judgment for the defendant? No, I, I don't believe he would be required to enter judgment. Because all that would have been proved was that there's one motivating factor there, but not necessarily a decisive one. Right, but I, it does seem to me that the jury, it would be fair to ask the jury to decide which of those two considerations probably played the greater role. But I think, it, it, and that's why I think taking it to the jury is one thing. Switching the burden of proof to insist that we prove that the, other, that the non-discriminatory ground was the primary reason for the decision is, is an inappropriate way to proceed, because there's no basis in the statute for that. The plaintiff still retains the burden to prove that that there was discrimination because of. But he's only proved that it was one of two possible motivating factors. But that's sufficient, in your view, to get to the jury. I would think that that would be sufficient to get to the jury, because I don't think we have to prove, I don't think the plaintiff has to prove, you know, obviously beyond a reasonable doubt or anything. I mean, I think the jury could fairly say that those are the two grounds. And I think in some ways that, that is the story. Common sense 
basis on which Price Waterhouse was decided. And, and, and it's, you know, it's important. If you, you know, the Chamber of Commerce brief actually focuses a great deal, Justice Stevens, on this multi-member decision-making body. And, you know, it seems to me if you look at cases like Mount Healthy and Price Waterhouse, those are all cases where you have multi-member decision-makers, and some of whom may have expressed some uh, biases and others of whom clearly didn't, and how do you deal with that situation, which impresses me as fundamentally different than a situation here where you have a single supervisor dealing with a single employee and where the case is tried on the theory that there's been no discrimination whatsoever, and it's up to the jury to make that determination at the end. And at the last minute, we have the jury instruction that shifts the burden to us, notwithstanding that we never would, would you, to make would, this an affirmative defense. Uh, would you think uh, you should have the uh, — burden in the following situation. Uh, at 10 o'clock on March 21st, the employer says, I'm going to get rid of Smith because he's too old. All right? That's it. Writes out the letter. Goodbye, Smith. An hour later, someone walks into the employer's office and says, I've discovered that Smith was just convicted of larceny. All right? Now, he already fired Smith because he was too old. But I take it he can make the defense, well, Smith would have been fired anyway. That isn't the reason I fired him, but he would have been fired anyway, and he can get off. But he should make that defense, shouldn't he? I mean, that's the Banner case. Fine. So the answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So now we have the same situation, but the jury has said this bad reason, his age, was a motivating factor. Play a role. Me, no, it didn't say play a role. Yeah, it did. That's well, what it says in this instruction that I have, I don't see the other one. It's on page 10 of the Joint Appendix. Well, I have on page 7 of uh, the uh, uh, appellant's brief, but the instruction was, the plaintiff's age was a motivating factor right. in it, defendant's decision. Right. And just, now, when it, I read that, in, in I fairness, think can — I, Can I just — if you go, the next instruction says — a motive, plaintiff's age was a motivating factor if plaintiff's age played a part or a role in the defendant's decision. So a motivating factor is a very narrow formulation oh. as, okay. as instructed right. in this particular I, case. Perfect, perfect. I didn't want to complicate it, but that may work in your favor to complicate it, and I want to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, fine. It played a part. It did have a role. Age motivated in part. Now, why isn't that the end of the matter? Because we have a statute that says age shouldn't play a role in, or play a role means it made a difference. I mean, to me, otherwise it played no role. It was an understudy, a ghost. It played a role if it would have made a difference. Played a part, it would have made a difference just like my first case. So we have an action, other things being equal, that should be illegal under this statute. But then, just as in the first case, we give the employer a defense. If you can show that in the absence of that age there in your mind, you would have done it anyway, which means the mix of motives would have been different then you get off. So if in the first case we, in fact, say it should be on the burden, should be on the employer, why shouldn't it be in the second case? Well, I mean, in, the, in the first place, saying that something is a motivating factor or played a role is a, a, as a sufficient basis on which to impose liability is flatly inconsistent with what this Court has said numerous times. It said it in Burdine, it said it in Reeves, it said it in Hayes and Paper, it said it, I think, last term in the Kentucky case where it says it has to play a role and be determinative. And that's the standard the Court has announced over and over again in age discrimination cases. The a-motivating factor formulation does come in Title VII, but that's because of the 1991 statute that specifically frames the argument in terms of a-motivating factor. So the, the, the bottom line here is that unless the Court deviates from the historic practice, which is if you're in civil litigation, the plaintiff retains the burden of proof throughout the process. But Price Waterhouse deviated. That was, I'm we sorry? have these two regimes out there. You're reciting McDonnell Douglas and say everything should follow that pattern. 
But you, to do that, you have to overrule Price Waterhouse, which gave recognition to the mixed motive framework that comes out of Mount, Mount Healthy. Well, my basic point on Price Waterhouse is that it seemed to me reasonably clear that a majority of the court, whether you, whether you rely upon Justice White or, or Justice O'Connor, clearly didn't intend for the jury, for the burden of proof to shift willy-nilly, that it's supposed to be an exception to the rule, narrowly defined. And Mr. the reality is not to recognize when I ask this question, how does this differ from the prima facie case that you make under McDonnell Douglas and Bertrand? He said, we, we don't have to just make a preliminary showing. We have to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that the prohibited discrimination was a motivating factor. Played, played a role. That, that, there's no question about that, Justice Ginsburg, but that is not much different, frankly, from a prima facie showing. The truth is, if you only make a prima facie showing and the defendant doesn't show up, you will have, in fact, satisfied your burden. Well, you will get to the jury, and if the jury accepts all your evidence, the jury can find in your favor. But the difference between a prima facie showing and what has to be shown here is the jury must actually find, based on your at least prima facie evidence, that age was a motivating factor. And until the jury makes that finding, if it is properly instructed, it doesn't get to the question of whether the defendant has any burden to show something in response. Isn't that correct? Well, there's no question that, I mean, although, I, I, again, what a motivating factor means is still, to my mind, extraordinarily narrow in this, or, or limited well, in terms of what's required sure, here. But I'm sure I understand one thing. If, if it's a motivating factor, it's enough to get by summary judgment and get the case of the jury. But the, the defendant will still win, if I understand all this, if, he, if the defendant proves, yes, I did too, and it had an influence on us, but we would have fired him anyway. And if, if, he, if he can prove under Mount Healthy that, yes, he thought about age and it, what rose the, raised the issue and everything else, but after he got all through, he was clearly fired him because he was a lousy salesman. Right. But just he wins. Clearly he would win under those circumstances. But the problem so there he is — does not lose just because you say it's a motivating factor. No, he doesn't lose. But the question is, what do you do once you make that finding? Do, do you, in fact, at the plaintiff's behest, shift the burden of proof to the defendant I mean, it makes one thing, and, and uh, the Solicitor General's, you know, properly identified that in some instances the defendants, as a tactical matter, are willing to accept as an affirmative defense and, and pursue the course you just articulated, Justice Stevens. But that's not what happened in this case. We were not prepared to accept the idea that age played a role in this case. We still don't think the evidence supports that. That's obviously not the issue here before us. But, but it, it does make it extremely important to resolve the question of at what stage can you foist essentially an affirmative but, but defense you, on the other side. We, we go back. I'm sorry to be hung up on this point. And maybe there are 15 cases that just prove I'm wrong. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, let's try other areas of the law. The dam is a nuisance. We now show, to prove that it's a nuisance, that it played a role in the death of my fish. I mean, isn't that the end of the case? Damages might be uh, at issue, how much of a role, but as far as liability is concerned. The gears were rusty. The rusty gears played a role in the derailing of the train. Again, it might be a question of who's responsible for what, but that there is liability, I think, in most areas of tort law, would be over once you prove that the defendant's factor played a role. Well, so is the law here, am I wrong about ordinary tort law? Possibly. I don't know that well. Is it that I, uh, uh, is it that this area is special? Is it that there are cases? So you can say any of those three, I'm prepared to be totally wrong. Though I'd hope I, I'm, I'm always reluctant to say that, Justice Breyer. Well, you can I, say that. I, I, I think the, I mean, I, in ordinary tort law, the, the standard of causation is both a combination of but-for and proximate no. causation. So and I think our played a role combines at least the necessary condition. But I don't, well, I, I don't think that's that. a fair result. Played a role. How did it play a role but, if it was not a necessary condition? Justice Ginsburg, at least as I read the, the, the dis difference between the plurality opinion in Price Waterhouse and, and the, the, all of the other opinions in that case, Price Waterhouse 
So the plurality said a motivating factor is actually a standard below but-for causation. The plurality was unwilling to accept even but-for causation as a requirement under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. The, the rest of the justices seem to not, not accept that. But that seems to me the very — yeah, the, the, the basic holding of the plurality, again, not of the Court, is that something less than but-for causation is required. I would be delighted, candidly, if the Court would go back to just but-for causation as the element of age discrimination, because I think if you get to that point, you get out of this business of trying to figure out what point you shift the burden. But if that's you, a, that question, I think, it can't be before us. We would certainly want to know what the government's position is on it. And Ms. Blatt was very clear that the government is not taking a position on that issue today. Your brief in opposition did not so much as mention McDonnell Douglas. So how was anybody to think that that was at stake, that that regime, which you later clarify in your respondent's brief, you think should be the sole test, how could that come into this case when it's not in the brief in opposition and, therefore, it's not in the petitioner's brief and it's not in the government's brief? Well, to, to be clear about this, I'm not pushing so much the, quote, McDonnell Douglas framework as I am Burdine, Hayes and Paper, and the other cases that talk about determinative factor. What, and and, but, and but all, we're, all we're saying is — But following that same formula. All those cases are following that litany, a prima facie case, the non-discriminatory reason, the Determinative pretext. factor, right. The, I, I think the answer to the question, Justice Ginsburg, is the, is the way the Chief Justice asked the question, which is how sensible is it to pull the one thread out of the, out of the Price Waterhouse analysis, assuming that Justice O'Connor speaks for the Court in some sense, you know, without examining how that plays in, given the underlying theory of the case. And I think that's a, a perfectly valid point. If the Court thinks additional briefing is warranted, then it would seem to me the right answer is to, is to call for additional briefing. But the I think The Solicitor General says, well, uh, this is going to affect Title VII. It's going to affect all kinds of other acts. This is watershed. Well, Justice Kennedy, clearly not going to but, uh, affect you, Title VII. You, 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 pardon me? Clearly isn't going to affect Title VII. Because that's statutory. Right, because there's a specific statute that defines it as a motivating factor, shifts the burden, and creates an entire remedial regime that doesn't exist under are, are the age discrimination let, statute. Let, let's assume that we have authority to in, incorporate the Title VII jurisprudence into the ADEA area as a matter of choice. Uh, are there reasons why there should be distinctions between the two regimes? Well, I think the primary one is the 1991 amendment where Congress clearly changed the language in Title VII. Are there reasons of administration or fairness other than I, I recognize that one's statutory and the other would, would be our case law? Well, it seems to me it's beyond that. I mean, it's almost a separation of powers problem when you say it's statutory because, again, Congress very con consciously decided to modify Title VII, created a complete regime. It, it would be a, a bit of a stretch for this Court not only to modify the standards in, in a way that would change substantive liability, but would create the, the affirmative defense as a remedial component of it. Well, in addition to that, Mr. Phillips, isn't age more closely correlated with legitimate reasons for employment discrimination than race and other factors that are proscribed by Title VII? Both Congress and this Court have recognized precisely that uh, as a problem. I mean, there are reasons to, to treat age discrimination differently from other forms of discrimination. But again, you know, there's no question that, that if you revisit Price Waterhouse, it will change some the Americans with Disabilities Act and some of the other provisions. But the reality is, if you're talking about a, a mess to begin with, the, the, the truth is the lower courts are in a state of, of dis disrepair at this point in any event, and, and, and it's even shown in this case. I mean, the truth is the Eighth Circuit has three different formulations of Justice O'Connor's direct evidence standard, circumstantial, strong evidence, and substantial evidence, substantial factor. So you know, if you're a district court judge sitting in the Eighth Circuit, you can pick any one of those, those three to go with. Can, can I get back to Justice Stevens's hypothetical? You have 
two people in making a decision. One says it's because of age, the other because of something, and, uh, a legitimate factor. And you uh, acknowledge that that could get to the jury? Yes, I believe it could. And is it under an instruction that simply says because of? Yes. I mean, if, if you were asking me how I would decide that case, yes, I think it ought to be, it ought to be because of. Now, if the Court wants to formulate some greater specificity of how the causation standards apply, that's fine. But at, at a minimum, it seems to me the Court would do well to go back at least to the notion of but-for causation as embodied in, in the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. It well, has never I mean, rejected say, that as a court. You say but-for causation, but my understanding of Justice Stevens' hypothetical is it's going to be very hard to uh, say that one w- would not have had the discrimination, the alleged action, would not have happened but-for one factor or the other if they're just two different factors. You well, would just leave that up to the jury to I, say because I, of I mean, juries are asked to make that kind of a decision. I agree with Justice Souter. Juries are a lot smarter than the lawyers. Well, but not only that, but the jury would be free to say, well, there were both causes, and the one was illegal. But under the Mount Healthy defense, if they're convinced they would have hi- fired this guy anyway, the company gets off. Right. And I understand that. And in those situations, I mean, it's, it, it, look, Justice O'Connor's analysis of this certainly certainly plays to a kind of gut feeling. When you say, and Mount Healthy is a good illustration of it, even maybe more so, where you say, we're firing you for two reasons. One of them is completely invalid, and the other one is completely valid. What are you supposed to do in that situation? It, but it seems to me that under, under normal civil litigation rules, and the, and the ones that Congress clearly had in its mind, the approach it would take into those circumstances is say, that's enough to get you to the jury, but that's not enough to force the jury to be instructed that they have to rule in favor of the plaintiff unless the defendant can show that, uh, but, but for, that, that no ma- regardless of the discriminatory animus, they nevertheless would have taken precisely the same action. That, to me, is the guts of, of, what, of what this case is about. It's not about direct versus circumstantial evidence. It's about under what circumstances does the burden of proof shift. And, and in a case like this, where there's no assertion of an affirmative defense, whereas I think, Justice Stevens, in your situations, there will, you know, most likely you would expect the defendant to say, I want to uh, accept that burden because I think I can, in fact, prove something. No, but inevitably in these cases, the employer is really trying, whether he calls it an affirmative defense or, or — or just a regular resistance to the plaintiff's case. The issue is, did he, would he have fired him anyway? And, and if, if, he, if, if that's what the jury believes, there, you could take Justice Breyer's view and say that's, that's not a sufficient defense because they acted illegally. But if you're allowed that, you're saying notwithstanding the illegal motive, if you show, well, that's the real reason I fired him was unrelated to that, the, the compelling reason, you win. And you win despite the fact that the process may have violated the statute. There's no question about that. And, all, and it's, again, the, the only question is who bears the burden of proof? And what do you do with all of those decisions of this Court that say that the, that the, that the burden to, to, uh, to show that age or whatever was the determinative factor rests throughout because those weren't those weren't thought of in the mixed motive framework and what you want to do is get rid of the mixed motive and say in a discrimination case there should be only one regime and the plaintiff should have the burden of persuasion from start to finish but that's not what mcdonald douglas did it's not what the eighth circuit did, which you acknowledge by not even bringing this up until you brief on the merits. So you also said that Title VII is out of it because the statute is taking care of it in 1991. Ms. Blatt, I heard her say distinctly that that Title VII would be affected. She urges not to touch this question. Well, I think you have to go back to the to the question that, that Justice Alito posed, actually, to say, when, when he asked her, how, do you, how much sense does it make to think about mixed motive versus other motive? Isn't it true that by the time the case gets to the jury, everything's a mixed motive because there's going to be the claim that this was — and this is a great illustration of that concept. There's a claim that the age was the basis for the decision, and there's a claim that there are any of a thousand other possible reasons that are out there, and age — just didn't happen to be one. And under those circumstances, the question is, what's the reasonable way to proceed? Uh, Justice Ginsburg, I apologize that we didn't raise this specifically in, in the brief in opposition. On the other hand, the reality is that the primary position that was taken by the other side was that this Court 
essentially can ignore or should overrule a portion of Price Waterhouse as a consequence of the, of, the, of the intervening Costa decision. And it seems to me under those circumstances, if you're going to put the issue of the validity of Price Waterhouse, whatever it means, at issue, then it seems to us a reasonable response on the merits to say, well, you shouldn't do it as, as a, in an isolation, that that's a completely artificial inquiry, and you ought to take a step back and say, maybe we haven't gotten this right in the first place, particularly given the difficulty of the lower courts in trying to figure out exactly what Price Waterhouse means. Whose is the controlling opinion and how do you allocate these burdens and under what circumstances? And given that the court, lower courts are in disarray, it would seem to me this is a situation where I don't know whether this is the best vehicle or the worst vehicle, but it is certainly an appropriate vehicle for the court to step back and evaluate it. And if the court is concerned about whether it has enough information to allow it to assess what would be the, the significant impact of revising Price Waterhouse, then it seems to me the right answer would be to ask the parties to, to brief that in addition to the way they briefed it at this stage. Not and to I simply throw up your the, hand. I assume the government, because it would certainly be informative to know what the agency responsible for the administration of Title VII thinks of this question. I, 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 I don't disagree with that, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, I, I, I don't think there are any, any guidelines out there that speak directly to this specific question, but obviously to the extent that the Solicitor General could speak for the EEOC, that would, I, I'm not denying that that, way, that might be helpful. But I think what the, what the Court needs to do is recognize that what it cannot, what it should not do in this case, is take the, the very narrowest way of vacating and remanding, because if it follows that course, nothing will move. Nothing will have been achieved by all of the work that's been put into this case at this point, because the Court of Appeals didn't believe the difference is between direct and circumstantial evidence, and therefore the Court at some point is going to have to evaluate beyond the quality of the evidence, what quantity of evidence is appropriate under the circumstances. It seems to me the Court has that in front of it. The jury instruction in this case shifted the burden way too early, or on, on way too little showing. A part, a role, that's not enough to shift the burden under, I don't even think, under Justice well, We can't theory. get into that, can we? I mean, there's no question about quantum of evidence here. Well, there is a question about the adequacy of the jury instruction. Adequacy of the jury instruction, but there isn't a question as to whether the issue should have gone to the jury in the first place, and I, I think that. Right. No, I don't, there's no question that the. That, well, there is a question on that. It's not before you. It's it's back in front of the Eighth Circuit. But there is still the issue of whether a motivating factor, meaning that it played a role, is a sufficient basis on which to trigger the the burden shifting uh, instruction in this case. That 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 is the narrowest basis on which this court could affirm. I'm simply saying that Justice White's opinion requires a substantial showing. The instruction in this case clearly doesn't accomplish that, and therefore the Court should set that aside, or the Court should affirm the Eighth Circuit and remand so that the District Court can uh, have a new trial on that issue. If there are no further questions, I'd urge the Court to affirm. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Schaffer, two minutes. Um, um, Mr. Chief Justice, may I please the Court? We are in agreement with the Government uh, that the Court should decide the the narrow question presented and not revisit Price Waterhouse. If I might respond to the question from Justice Breyer, um, and I'm going to summarize to some extent materials which are referred to in footnote 18 of our reply brief. Um, the tort rule, there was a circumstance very well established in which under tort law, but for causation was not the standard. And that was the situation in Corey versus Havener, which is the leading case in this area, in which there were two causes, each sufficient to have brought about the result. And Corey was a case of two motorcyclists who spooked a horse. Uh, and the rule in those cases was that, uh, that either of cause, that the tortfeasor involved with either cause could be held liable. Don't those cases involve two independent physical causes of an event, not the breaking down of human motivation into, in, into separate factors? Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's the, but it's the analogous area of tort law. See, how, is, what they're trying to say, which is, which is making me think, is a lot about — we have a human being who did certain things. And we know this. We know that human being had a mix of motives and that the bad motive played a role. It was a motivating force. And that might be sufficient. It is under Title VII. And if you want to interpret this like Title VII, that's fine. That's the end of it. But then we're going to let someone off if we imagine a different but hypothetical situation. The hypothetical is where the bad motive isn't there. 
Well, it's hard to prove what human beings would do in a hypothetical situation that isn't the real situation. And I take it that's the reason we've imposed this burden upon the employer. And, and is there an analogy to that in tort law? Um, it, the, the problem that comes up with multiple causes is that it is hard to reconstruct what would happen. And there is a long line of cases, including a number of decisions by um, Learned Hand in 1938, one of which you cited in Transportation Management, in which the lower courts have agreed that uh, where uh, uh, multiple factors are involved, um, it's reasonable to put the burden on the defendant uh, which, of sorting it all out. Uh, and we think that's appropriate here. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.